0: The unveiling of the company of heaven. Every man and every woman is a star.
1: Media podcast. I am Eric Scott Picard, one of your co-hosts this evening, joined as ever by Patrick Ryan.
0: What's up everyone?
1: So we've got a really nice show for you tonight. Uh, we're going to talk about a really interesting and sustainable permaculture product uh, project. Um, they're called the Dancing Rabbit Eco Village. <clears throat> so let me just read a couple things from their about page online and then we'll introduce our guest who's a member of this community. Uh, At Dancing Rabbit Eco Village, we understand how difficult it can be to live sustainably and responsibly within modern U.S. culture. We believe that we can work to build a healthy alternative, a social structure that is both non-exploitative and vibrant. As our village grows, we see this ideal take shape more clearly every day, a diverse range of people living ecologically sound lives in a community that truly serves as an example of positive human interaction within the natural world. In 1997, the DR Land Trust purchased 280 acres in the rolling hills of northeastern Missouri. We are now deep into pioneering, constructing buildings while planning and developing community structure. There is an ever-increasing emphasis on internal economy, which includes bartering and an internal currency. Eventually, we see five to 1,000 people living in our village with businesses and homes surrounding the town center. So rather than read more of that, I'm going to introduce our guest who is Ray Machado, who is a member of this community, and she's going to tell us a little bit about what it's like to live there and what the the mission and goal of this community is. Ray, it's a pleasure to have you on.
2: Hello people. I'm Ray. Nice to meet you. Thanks for listening with us tonight.
1: Yeah, absolutely everyone. Thanks for listening and I'm sure it's going to be a real fun show. So, Ray, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, the Dancing Rabbit Eco-Village. Tell us, first of all, uh, a little bit about its history, how it was formed.
2: Sure. Uh, First of all, I want to mention something about what you just read. I believe that number should be 500 to 1,000, not 5 to 1,000.
1: Yes, I misspoke there. You're right. Yeah.
2: So, Dancing Rabbit has a mission to grow, to be... A replicable village and with our mission we have sustainable ecological covenants that we agree to live by so that's the the only thing about being a member of this community is that you um, choose to agree to live to that you agree to live within those covenants and and um, Being a member, you get to, like, build on your leasehold and pay your dues, which is uh, 2% of your income annually. It's really manageable. It's quite inexpensive to live here. But we'll get to the economics and whatnot of it shortly. So I guess let's start with the history. Um, Back in, like, 1997 and a few years before that, Some of our founding members were going to college at Berkeley University in California. They were having some meetings to like, let's design this thing. They weren't quite sure what it was called, but they thought it was going to be like an an eco village. And so as those meetings progressed and they dreamt up and visioned what this project was going to be, um, they were looking for land and they chose northeast Missouri because the land is inexpensive And there's very little building code regulations. And there was already an intentional community nearby. So they were able to, like, land at that community, which is called Sand Hill Farm. And that's just, like, it's 40 years old now. And it's just, like, a family farm-style, egalitarian, intentional community. So it means they all share income. But it's not a huge eco-village. That's not their goal. So dancing rabbits founders were able to be embraced by that community and have a place to land while they looked for the land and they made the purchase and put the land in the land trust and throughout, you know, all this time, but especially in those beginning years, it was great to have that neighboring community to help create this one. And let's fast forward like seven, eight years into dancing rabbits life some of the members decided like, you know, this isn't exactly what I'm looking for. I'm a homesteader. I really want to have my own animals and, and have my garden space right around my home. Um, compared to Dancing Rabbit as an eco-village has a, a goal to like build very densely like a European style pedestrian scale village so our agriculture and our our gardens are all on the perimeter of this outside of the village and all of our homes are very densely clustered so we can walk to and fro and have a lot of um connection and feeling of community so anyways um some of the people like eight years in they bought the piece of land next door and made red earth farms and that's like a homesteading-style community. Okay. And so now the three communities here in Northeast Missouri are this awesome network to support each other. And Dancing Rabbit is now 18 years old. And um, I've lived here for three years. I visited on 10-11-12, and I moved here on 12-12-12. So it was very serendipitous i felt very confident that i was in the right place in doing what i'm supposed to be doing because of all those alignments
1: sure okay so basically there are uh three intentional communities in in, in the area dancing rabbit being a more uh a village oriented sort of setting is it what you're saying is like there's a town center with surrounding uh agricultural land um I'm assuming by when you were talking about uh, people having their own animals, the uh, animals at Dancing Village would then be held in common if you have animals at all? No. No? Um,
2: Everyone has a lot of autonomy. So even if, like, if I want to have my own chickens or goats or whatever animals I can and do... And if I want to share that, I can create a sub-community of people that were in a goat co-op together or a chicken co-op together. Okay.
3: Um,
2: but nothing is really, like, communal. We, it's, it's more just about, like, the village being designed around a pedestrian scale.
1: Okay, yeah, I see, I see. And and you're going for a, a communitarian feel where your homes are nearby each other. You can visit oftentimes.
2: Totally. Um, I get so much socializing during the day just because I'm walking from like one meeting to another work scene to my garden and back to my house. And like, I get this interaction between those short little walks that just brighten and enliven my day. It's right, awesome. Right.
0: <clears throat> have Have you since you've experienced uh, living within this community, um, you know, judging from what you just said, would you say that it had a dramatic effect on your own experience of interpersonal relations?
2: Absolutely. Um, living here has shown me a completely different version of how to relate and communicate with people. Um, I a great majority of the people here are interested in doing personal growth work and nonviolent communication and sort of as a group we're... Re- I mean, currently, we're kind of, as a group, we're researching feminism and, like, what exactly is that? And are we a feminist eco-village? And um, so with those things in mind and the way that we communicate so well, um, I definitely have experienced um, much deeper relationships and, and connections in community than in my previous life. I came from Hollywood, California. I've lived in Southern California my whole life. Um and so it's really different being in this rural setting and with this sort of like rural pace of life where sometimes I'm in the garden and sometimes I'm um getting to connect with somebody over gardening while I'm hollering at them from their, my garden to theirs. Or I stop by and ask somebody a question about like, what are you doing with your potatoes over there and like Mm -hmm. mulching them or something. And then, um, it's, it's like all the different ways in which I get to be your friend. It's like, I get to see your friendship with me In the garden. And then I get to see our friendship when we're on a committee making decisions together. And then I go to work at the, at the bed and breakfast that I work at. And like, uh, maybe you're like the bartender or you're the cook in the kitchen or something. And so I get to have this relationship with so many different people in so many different settings
3: Mm.
0: Yeah, it's it's funny, you know. I've I've never lived in a, in a sustainable community or whatever, but the very little experience I've had, you know, camping out with a group of people for an extended period of time or whatnot, it's it's interesting when when you get a group of people together that are all sort of going for the same goal and all sort of have to rely on each other on a fundamental level. It's really fascinating to see how. The, the fundamental relationships you have with these people, and they could be, they could be pretty much strangers, I've noticed, could completely revolutionarily change. You know. And I think that's really honestly one of the biggest potentials behind communities uh, such as yours.
2: Uh, so I resonate with that comment because at Dancing Rabbit we have five visitor sessions every year for potential recruitment of residents and members and in that visitor session the dozen people that are in a session together they become so such good friends immediately because being in community like it already sets such a level playing field of like you all have so much in common already just because you're here and interested in this. And so that's like a great place to start friendships from is where like you already have so much in common.
0: Right, right. It's coming from the context of, you know, we're teammates rather than competitors, which is really, you know, the the whole competition paradigm seems to be what's prevalent, you know, in our sort of capitalistic uh, culture, especially here in the United States. Whereas what you guys are doing, it's really the, the antithesis to that.
2: Well, I'm not a guy, but I am doing it too. But um, I resonate with that statement also because the competitive and the non-competitiveness, like, yesterday I just played Ultimate Frisbee, and it is one of the really, really fun sports that my village plays, and it's totally non-competitive. Like, we don't even really keep score, we just like, yay, another point was made, and like, we cheer for everybody all the time. And when somebody says, Oh, that was such a bad throw. Like somebody says it was the wind or you're a good thrower. That was just a one-time thing or something like it is so supportive and fun. And it's so refreshing to be like, yeah, we have fun here too. It's not always just hard work because it really is hard work to live a simple life like this. It's like, Shoveling and building and working and meetings. And then it's like there's some playtime too, where we get to throw the frisbee around and play. We get to like have a land clean day together, where we all came together yesterday and did this beautiful land clean before our visitor session starts and kind of like our spring cleaning for the year. So it's nice to have a balanced life like that.
1: What I find interesting is that, uh, like, for example, as what you're saying, you know, it, it involves a human being being very much involved in their community in this kind of setting. Right. Whereas, uh, for example, living in the big cities, I mean, it's it's pretty pretty much completely alienating. Right. <laughs> I mean, there's all these people, um, you, you, you know, you've got uh you know, strange economic models that are imposed on you and, and, and class, and, uh, and you don't really know anybody who's around you. It's very isolating. Whereas in a community like this, when you really are, it, even, you know, with your organizing meetings, which we'll talk about a little bit here soon, you know, you're a person who's involved in the politics of your community. You're involved in the economics of your community. You're a vital part of all those aspects And I think that's how human beings are kind of structured biologically to behave, you know, in that small tribal community setting. And it's much more, uh, I think it's more positive for the human spirit to be in that setting rather than in the large isolating cities, you know.
2: Mm, That was really powerful, Eric. Thanks for saying all that. I totally agree.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's just a subject that I've, I've thought about quite a lot. Um, I, I guess I would ask. That I think that's a good transition to get into. Uh, well, let's talk about the economic model a little bit. Um, I understand you've got an internal currency, um, and there, you know, there's there's a, a bartered system involved. But also, as you said, you know, I mean, people do go and they, you know, they work various jobs even outside the community. I would assume. Uh, how how does economics work within your community?
2: So that question and almost every other question is. It could be a very different answer depending on who you ask here. So keep in mind that you're getting my point of view on all of these answers. Sure. And uh, let's see. People support themselves in many, many different ways. And like one person has many different skills. So... um, multiple streams of income. Like some people have um, a job working for the nonprofit of Dancing Rabbit um, where maybe they do accounting or um, admin assistant kind of work. And then on the side, they do like childcare and bread baking. So like all three of those jobs combined are enough to sustain them um, because we have a very low cost of living here. Um, so at Dancing Rabbit, we have a common house which with shared infrastructure. There's like a shared shower facility and restrooms and kitchen and library, office, huge living room. So I can build my house really tiny and it can be much less expensive because I don't have to plum it with kitchen and bathroom plumbing. So like the cost of building my beautiful timber frame, straw bale earth and plaster natural building was about 23 to $25,000. It took me three and a half years to build it, but I built it. And now I have the skills to continue to like um, build other homes for other people. And so like, um now one of my sources of income can be construction and natural building. Uh, but I didn't know I had that skill before I moved here. And um, so I personally make an income from doing voiceover work online. And I make uh, like video content and make sort of videos and commercials for the nonprofit and for other organizations and crowdfunding videos. And uh, like in our rural community, like um, a few counties wide, I have like the hospital and these other um, organizations that have hired me to make crowdfunding or commercial type videos for them. Um, So those are some of the ways that I make an income and A lot of people have an online job of sorts. And then we have the, on farm, we have the bed and breakfast. It's the Milkweed Mercantile bed and breakfast is in the process of being changed from like two people's personal business to becoming 12 people's worker owned cooperative. So that's one of the businesses here that is beginning to employ a dozen people instead of Two to four. So, yeah, there's lots of ways to make money. Um, we do trade and barter plenty of things mm-hmm. and just like gift economy things to somebody knowing that, like, oh, it'll come back to me someday, or it's just like um, credit or what's that called? Um, social capital. G- and then. Gift
1: economies, right? You know, yeah. that, that idea.
2: And then we also have the ELMS, E-L-M-S, Exchange Local Money System. And it is not a federal currency. It's not, like, acceptable to pay my taxes with this form of, of money. Um, I don't know if I can call it money. I think I have to call it currency. <laughs> sure. Anyways, so with ELMS, it's basically like um, an online software where I get an account and then I exchange with the elms secretary cash for elms so it's one dollar per one elm and then I use that elms currency um on farm here to pay for everything I could possibly need here on farm and then when I leave and I go to like the grocery store in town to just because I'm picking somebody up from the train station and I'm like great I'm going to stop at the store for me and my seven neighbors uh then I would use cash at the you know supermarket or something and with the elm system I can send you 15 elms because you went grocery shopping for me and I can send elms to the milkweed mercantile to pay for my my bar tab and I can pay my dues and my fees for living in the village uh, with elms. Any more questions on that?
1: Well, it sounds like... Um, <clears throat> uh, like, with elms, it sounds, uh, it sounds to me close to something like... Um, uh, like, regional currencies, if you've ever heard of, like, Ithaca dollars, right? It's a good example of a regional currency... Uh, A lot of communities in Japan use regional incomes where it's uh, uh, oftentimes it'll be like uh, volunteer-based and then you get these local income vouchers which could be traded for cash or could be used within its own internal system or even like a Bitcoin, so an alternate currency system.
2: Yes, it's very much like those.
0: Now, is Elm specific to your community or is it something that is that it, it sort of is used in multiple places.
3: Um,
2: it is very specific to dancing rabbit eco village. Um, it's not accepted in very many other places. Uh, the nearest um, town to us is called Kirksville, Missouri, and there is a cafe that, um, called Take Root Cafe, and they are going to be accepting the Elms system or currency. And there's, you know, some other negotiations in the process where we're trying to get Elms uh, accepted a little more wide scale, but... Nothing yet.
0: So so uh, just for the listeners, like what advantages or direct advantages would you say one has using the Elm system as opposed to just using uh, regular uh, U- US currency?
2: So for us, the benefit is keeping the currency in our community. We don't really want the money to be flowing out of the village. We want the money to stay and support the internal economy. Mm -hmm. And then another thing is um, we're voting with our dollars. We are choosing to not be part of that old paradigm and the old system uh, by, by choosing to use this currency we're extracting ourselves even further from um from supporting the structures that we
0: don't agree with right right man that is that is so fascinating and it's so exciting to hear that there's communities like the dancing rabbit really utilizing that idea yeah,
1: exactly
3: Hooray! <laughs>
1: No, it really is. I mean, we talk a lot about alternative currency uh, on the show, uh, alternative economic models, and certainly ones that aren't, uh, you know, inherently exploitative in nature. And this doesn't sound like something that's exploitative. It sounds like something that connects with the overall economy, but is protecting itself and protecting its community by, by existing. Yeah. You know.
0: So you, you said you've been there since uh, 2012. Have you noticed a, an increase in um, you know, the overall growth and the amount of people joining the community? I mean, how, how has it shifted in those past uh, four years?
2: Um, well, it's been three years. I came at the very tail end of 2012. Um, and this community goes through ebbs and flows and we're sort of in an ebb right now. Um, I wouldn't say that we, um, I don't think that we've increased since I got here. I think that we've decreased a
1: little bit. Well, what's the, uh, what, do you know what the total population is right now?
2: Yeah, we have um 48 members that live here right now, but our um our occupancy like it almost doubles during the summer because we have so many visitors on farm and family members visiting and work exchangers that come for learning opportunities, student researchers and interns um And then we have, like, educational programming, like a permaculture design course, an eco-village education course that teaches people how to start eco-villages. We do webinars. We have, like, a couple of veterans workshops, a yoga retreat, um, and just, like, a Midwest Sustainable Communities Conference. So all those things bring a lot of extra people to our eco village and sort of like increase our numbers. So it feels like a lot more people live here in the summertime. And then in the winter, it's like, it's real intimate. And sometimes people leave for the winter to work. And sometimes people like go away for the holidays over the winter. So our population feels even more like intimate and small. And it's so nice. It's like your time to recharge your battery and, Focus on your personal growth work and have like intimate, smaller potlucks with uh, just a few clusters of people instead of the whole like seventy to eighty people that could be here
1: in the summer. Sure, I'd I'd like to talk a little bit about you guys, your, your uh, the organizing process. That goes on. Um, I, I mean, I understand you have uh, organizing committees for various things. Um, what's that committee process like? Uh, basically, I'm asking, how, how do the politics function within the community? Sure.
2: So when I first visited in 2012, this community, um, it ran on a consensus decision-making decision process.
1: I thought that's what you were going to say, and I was hopeful to talk about that. Go ahead. I'm sorry.
2: So that's where everybody, as many people as possible, get in the same room at the same time to talk about something and work it out and come to a decision. And the village decided once they got to a population over 30 people that one, they couldn't really fit that many people in the room anymore, and they couldn't really hear all the voices to come up with a decision in a timely manner. They were spending too much time in in, uh, meetings. And so the community decided to transition into a village council. And so now we have um, a village council of seven people that gets elected every two years and... Um. so half of the village council changes every year and each person commits to a two-year obligation. So something like that. But um. that's sort of like the final step as to how our decisions get made. And before the village council is looking at these questions, there's already been a committee that has been like, molding this um, conversation or dis- decision that needs to be made. And so we have a plethora of committees. I can't even guess how many. There's probably 50. Uh, okay, I'm lying. There's not 50. <laughs> so we have like a committee for, for warren sighting, which a warren is a leasehold where somebody wants to live. Uh, Because rabbits live in Warrens. Um, There's a committee for like path and road maintenance. There's a long-term planning committee. An outreach committee. um, An eco-progress committee. So we can monitor our own eco-progress. So there's just, I mean, a ton of committees. There's kid committee and pet committee. And basically like we sit in an hour long meeting once a week in our certain committees and every individual is probably on anywhere between 1 to 5 committees and so your committee helps to sort of mold these decisions that need to be made and gather the information and send it on to the village council so that the village council can talk to the community and receive feedback and um, just work out the details of it and come up with a decision and then send that decision out to the community for a two week comment period before it's ratified as a decision. So that's how we do things now.
1: So it's kind of a direct democracy blended with some, uh, consensus process. Totally. Yeah. 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 That's fantastic. I, you know, I, I've often felt, our national politics is extraordinarily alienating. I mean, it's very hard for anybody to be legitimately active in the national political process. But even local political processes are incredibly uh, alienating to most people. I mean, uh, you, you know, you, even somebody like myself, and I'm a political person, you know, my city has multiple wards. I couldn't name every ward council person.
2: Oh, totally. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But a community like that, you can be vibrantly involved in the day-to-day decision-making process. Yeah, 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 you know, like a, a smaller, direct, democratic, consensus-based uh, system is, you know, it's, it's just far more engaging for people. It encourages people to become active in their community.
3: It
2: does. And it's refreshing and empowering.
1: Yeah, it's certainly personally empowering absolutely you know it's a a means by which you can exercise some level of control over what happens in your immediate surroundings you know Mm. Mm -hmm.
0: it's it's almost as if it's like the next phase of of democracy or the next natural phase of democracy because like you said eric it's like in the current structure we got now you know democracy is only as powerful as how influential the individual is you know and in a community like Dancing Rabbit, it certainly seems like the individual's um, opinion um, has a lot more of an impact than, you know, even, even our local city politics.
3: Yeah.
2: So not only are we um, developing the next phase of, like, politics and democracy... But I feel like our community is also um, hitting up against that edge where just on a cultural evolution of, of humankind, like our, our culture is becoming so evolved here that some people are rubbing up against that edge and feeling like they're trying to push into the next level of evolution for a culture. And that's been really, really neat to watch here in this village. Um, it's beyond just like the, the democratic, uh, process and the decision-making stuff, but just like the anthropological view of how humans and, and our culture has been developing, um, it feels like we're right on that edge of like pushing our envelope to the next phase of, of cultural like evolution.
1: Yeah. That's uh, the, the, that was the exact phrase that came into my mind when you were talking about that cultural evolution. And it's even a return to what anthropologists tell us that before, uh, you know, before the advent of civilization, this is how human beings lived naturally for 10,000 years
0: right right I was just going to say that it's like an evolution by going back to our to our roots
2: yeah and so I think the the part that you just said of evolution by going back this is the phase of evolution where we're able to like look back without judgment but by using discernment to be able to grab those nuggets that were working for each phase of our cultural evolution, and keep those nuggets with us, and still be able to let go of all the other things that didn't work in socialism and um, hierarchy and blah blah blah.
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah, take what works and keep it and adapt it, and throw out all the things that don't. Yeah. Right. Sure.
0: And I think the key being, you know, utilizing decentralization as opposed to centralizing the power, um, you know, economically and politically. Um, and it's funny too, because Eric, you brought up a good point earlier. It's it's almost as if,
3: <clears throat>
0: I mean, I don't know how familiar you are with this, Ray, but if you study something like DNA, um, and even just the the very way that DNA is structured. Right or the way just that uh, ecosystems uh, function, they function on a decentralized, um, non-hierarchical method or fashion a- across the board. But then when you start getting into like the human forms of of, of organization, all of a sudden you have this like top-down, um, you know, extremely hierarchical forms of ways that they they impose on us to that that we're that we're automatically taught that oh this is the way that you know we organize things and it couldn't be further from the truth and it's like going back to the way these aboriginal cultures functioned it just seemed like it was just so much more of a healthy way to live and you know promoted such uh much more healthy um, communities, and was healthier for the ecosystem. So it was, it was just overall regenerative across the board. Um, and it, it's it's just amazing to see people like you guys really doing it and utilizing it, especially since ninety seven. Because I feel like before two thousand, things like this were had to be extremely rare, you know.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I resonate. That's all very exciting, and and I'm so proud. That's what we're doing.
1: Awesome. Yeah, it must be something that you're proud to be a part of. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, t- tell us a little bit more about the ecological covenants. Now, we talked about this a little earlier. People who come to live um, in the community take uh, uh, swear to some ecological covenants. You want to expand on that idea a little bit?
2: Um, sure. So, after coming to visit Dancing Rabbit as in a visitor session, um, somebody would apply for residency, and that residency takes six months, and then they would apply for membership, and once you're a member, you're able to lease land and build, um, you pay two percent of your income and dues, and then you abide by these six ecological covenants, um, (laughs) <laughs> let's see if I can remember most of them off the top of my head. Mm. Um, so we have a covenant that we will use local, um, sustainable or repurposed lumber for building. Um, all of our like air conditioning, heating and cooling will not be used from non-renewable sources. Um, mm-hmm. Our, let's see, um, our vehicle covenant uh, states that we will not own a personal motorized vehicle. Uh, So that means that we have a car co-op and we all share vehicles. Mm. Um, In gardening, we have like organic gardening practices. Uh, Let's see. All of our waste will be recycled and composted in a closed loop system. Uh, okay, not all of our waste, but all of our org- organic waste. Um, and then the sixth one, I... I don't have that one on the top of my head. But anyways, that's basically it. And so that leaves a lot of, of space for autonomy, for you to be able to live in your values and live here the way that you want to live here so long as if you're going to build your house like you can you can use bricks you can use lumber you can use like mud or bales or you can do a green building instead of a conventional building instead of a natural building like it so long as your lumber is um sustainably harvested or reused then it's all good um you can, you know, grow whatever you want to grow, so long as your, or your gardening is organic. Um, So the community itself does not have a, um, a goal of being self-sufficient, just being um, sustainable, sustainable, yeah, a sustainable community, but that doesn't mean that every person has to be self-sufficient. So there's, a wide variety of of spectrum here. Some people um, want to be very off-grid and hardcore, and they want to, like, grow their own animals and, and eat their own meat from their own animals. And some people want to be vegan, and some people are omnivore, and some people um, don't have as strict... Uh, um. Values They feel like just living here is a huge, um, reduction in their carbon footprint. And so maybe they feel fine with eating packaged food or with driving the vehicle more or less often, or so there's huge diversity in spectrum of sustainability here.
1: Interesting. Interesting. I had a very similar conversation earlier today, um, with a mutual friend, fellow activist, uh, well, it was John Carico. He's a former guest on the show, writer with the Fifth Column. But um, well, we were talking about, you, you know, for people who, who listen to that and uh, and would chafe under having to, you know, use a car co-op or grow organically on quote unquote their own land. Uh, you know, you know I, I I would I would remind you that in order to defeat this growing climate crisis that we are facing. Your world governments will impose worse things than what Ray was just saying on you. They're going to have to. At some point, the crisis is going to reach terminal levels, and they they will simply just come and take your car from you. There's no reason anymore why everybody needs to drive a vehicle. There's no reason anymore why we can't use sustainable materials to build our housing and use sustainable energy. And at some point, the world governments will impose these things on you. There is simply that they will simply be left with no choice. Uh, So it's it would be better to hop in before that happens, you know, so that uh, we can try to stem this global climate crisis before it gets to that terminal level if it hasn't already. So that'll just be my little rant about that. Personally, I think. (laughs) Personally, I, I. I, I, I think those are all perfectly reasonable uh, caveats to make to live in a, a community like this. Yeah.
2: I support that notion of, like, make the change now and make it choicefully because it won't hurt as bad if you're the one making choosing to make this change. Mm-hmm. If it gets forced upon you later and there's catastrophe after catastrophe... You're not going to have the leisure to learn the skills at your own pace.
1: Exactly, exactly. I think that's an incredibly salient point. You know, I I, I, I think a lot of people, especially in the middle and upper classes in the United States and Europe, you know, when faced with the gravity of global climate change they're simply not going to know what to do they don't have the skill sets they're not going to know how to live without the supermarket down the street and being able to drive to it in their car and get gas you know i mean it's uh we all need to start becoming prepared for this eventuality it's looming upon us in the next generation you know it's 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 something we're we're just going to need to have dynamic skill sets and be able to organize in communities among each other because uh, the way that we're living now is simply not sustainable and the way that we're living now isn't going to be here in 50 years
2: yep and you got to get a big head start because like a food forest and fruit trees and nut trees like those take a long time to come in so if you want to You know, have more than just like fruits in this. I mean, fruits and vegetables in the spring and summer. Like to have more food for more period of time during the year. It 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 takes a lot of uh, preparation and pre work and building of root cellars and.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It it requires a level of preparedness and certain skill sets and. Yeah, people need to start doing that right now. Yeah. You know, plan for the future. I I I feel like uh, your community is one that should be a model for a lot of other communities. And there's other interesting models out there, too. You know, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen anything about the Venus Project and things like that. You know, that there's various interesting, sustainable models. And I think whenever anybody makes the intentional choice... To say, I'm going to do my part to uh, to lead a sustainable lifestyle and to step outside of this very toxic capitalist system. Um, I think they're doing the right thing. I guess
2: this is the point of... I guess this is the time when I want to make a plug for IC.org. Um, if people are ready to start looking at alternative ways of living. Um, Intentional communities has a directory where they can find other eco-villages and intentional communities at, at all different spectrums of sustainability or religion or what they're organized around or how many people live there and so they can find that diversity on ic.org.
1: I, I'm actually just pulling it up right now. This is incredible. Uh,
2: click on directory. Yeah. And you can click by state or you can search for it by, like, you can search for eco village, or you can search by religion or you can search by, like, um, uh,
1: yeah, it, it looks like you can, uh, you can search by a, a number of different filters here. This is a really interesting thing, something I'm going to get deeper into. Um, oh, you, you, know, you just brought up a religion. I guess that's something I should ask about. Um, and it ties into another question I, I had about, about the Dancing Rabbit community, about diversity. Um, obviously, I know there are intentional communities that are based around religious principles. Uh, is there any of that in Dancing Rabbit?
2: Um, before I get to that, I would say yes around re- religion and yes around diversity. Like there's other communities just based on like diversity. Um, so here at Dancing Rabbit, we do not have any um, religious connection or, um, or path. How do I say that? Uh, there's pretty much like uh, everyone has their own different answer for what religion they are Um, and as a community there is no religion practiced together Uh, I meet with a group of a few people and we celebrate like a full moon fire ceremony Um, and like As a community, we have like a few different men's group and a few different women's groups. And so that's like a group of men or women who get together and choose to use a certain type of um, meeting or language, like maybe um, sort of like nonviolent communication, but some other like maybe co-counseling. And so we use this co-counseling methods to connect with each other and support each other and be therapy for each other. So um, that's kind of my experience with religion in community. It's been more so like um, individual choicefulness to connect with a group of, a small group of people and practice your... um, your own type of ceremonies together
1: so you would say at the dancing rabbit community is a community with freedom of religion is what you'd say absolutely okay and i know there are intentional communities for for people who are uh well i know for example even in the very early days of christianity for example with the gnostics we're talking about like the first century second century um intentional communities started popping up that were centered around Christian principles. And the United States has a history of that, like in the 1800s and the early 1900s. And I know that there have been intentional communities based around Eastern philosophies and things of that nature. So that is something that people can look at. And that is that something that's out there, you know,
0: um, have you, do you have any personal experience with any other intentional communities and uh, if so are you aware of like the direct differences um, between them and dancing rabbit
2: um so the 6 months before i moved from california i spent researching the intention the ic.org directory of communities and so just on like a paper and a and a computer type relationship I was able to research those communities and um, I found that like there aren't very many other communities that have been around as long as Dancing Rabbit and when I first arrived here there was a friend named Amanda Crichton who had made a documentary called Within Reach where she and her partner Ryan had rode their bicycles around the United States, visiting 150 different intentional communities over one year. And so during my visitor session, I was lucky enough to be able to watch this documentary and meet this Amanda and feel so much in common with her. And I just felt like, okay, well, this documentary helped, helped me to do a lot of research. And, um, Like, she ended up choosing to live at Dancing Rabbit Eco Village after visiting all those other communities. Um, So it helped me to be very confident in making my decision to live here.
1: Yeah, certainly. And uh, uh, so basically you you went through the directory and and found that this would be the best fit for you, and it seems to have been working out the last three, three years,
3: huh?
2: Yeah. Uh, I mean, I did have a list of like five or six places that I was going to visit and like Twin Oaks and Acorn are in Virginia and Living Roots and, um, is in Indiana and there's, um, yeah. So there's a handful of other communities that were sort of big enough that I thought I was going to visit them, but I also, like, something in me just kind of knew, like, yeah, that's, something didn't feel exactly right, and the first place I went to, I met somebody, I went to um, what I thought was going to be a small farm training center, and it turned out to be a Hare Krishna community, and I met somebody there who's a monk who does, like, facilitation for consensus meetings and so he's been to lots of eco villages and um, he suggested like that dancing rabbit should be really high on my list of places to visit and so I took that advice and came here right after that and stayed and I'm still in the honeymoon phase I love so much living in this community
1: It really sounds like it. It really sounds like it. It, 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 You know, it's uh, it's heartening. uh, It's it's hard uh, for a lot of people. Like, for example, you know, I'm an anarchist activist. Um, During Occupy Wall Street, you know, I went to a lot of different cities um, looking at their general assemblies, Right. It's really hard for people to get into consensus processes and, and do it properly. David Graber, who I talk about all the time, talks about indigenous peoples who use consensus process, who have for thousands upon thousands of years, you know, they actually know how it works, and, you know, it's difficult to get off the ground with people who are new to it. So it's nice that people are try, trying to travel around and kind of teach people like how this can actually work. And how, when it does work, it can be so beautiful.
3: Yeah.
1: You know, and especially you know, you're saying a dancing rabbit. You use a, a, a variation of it with the direct democracy. I mean, that's what consensus process is all about, though, is a community finding its own way to to do things and function. Totally. So it's it's definitely heartening. I um. I will say. Uh, I would like everybody to do a little homework for us tonight uh, after the podcast and go on ic.org, which I've been very casually browsing here in the last few minutes. Uh, It looks like a great resource. And to go on the Dancing Rabbit website and really, really give some thought as to whether or not you think you could live in a community like this, because I think it'd be appealing to most people.
2: (laughs) Hmm. I'm very happy to hear that. You think it would be appealing to most people. Um, I am so passionate about living this way and I would love to share it with people. So please reach out to Dancing Rabbit Eco Village. Come and visit us in whichever form and fashion uh, fits your lifestyle best. Um, we have a bed and breakfast. We have like just overnight stays where you could be hosted by an individual Um there's like visitor sessions if you're possibly interested in living in some type of community um there's like educational workshops um so there's lots of ways that you can visit this intentional community please do
1: yeah we we've got a little bit more time i'd just like to ask maybe about some like kind of uh uh, not logistical questions, but like aesthetic questions. Why don't you tell us a little bit about? Uh, so, so if, if somebody's coming to visit just to see uh, how how you you do things, like what can they expect? Like uh, you say, there's a bed and breakfast. Can they camp? Where can they stay? What are they gonna find? Like how are the houses constructed? What, what is what does the area look like? Tell just tell us a little bit about the things that you see when you walk outside every day.
3: Okay.
2: Uh, let's imagine this virtual uh, tour. Okay, so you drive through cornfield after cornfield after soybean field, and you get to the rolling hills of, of Dancing Rabbit. Um, you turn into our driveway, and you notice there's like an orchard on one side of you and our recycling center on the other side of the orchard, and there's Bike World with uh, with thousands of bikes in there, and um, a garden at the entrance across from the parking lot. And then there's hammocks where people are just like lounging and swinging in the swings and the hammocks and being outside together under the shade. Um, really cute little painted mailboxes with flowers underneath, and then you're in the courtyard. And there's a huge, beautiful mural on the, on the side of Bike World. And then you see this white building with, like, four pointy peaks on its roof. And that's, like, a shared kitchen with, like, a rental rooms upstairs. So let's say you're a new resident and you're just new here. You could rent a room instead of having to, like, tent. Um, I lived in a tent the first three years while I was building my house. And then I would live in the house during the winter, no matter what condition it was in and stuff. Um, my first winter here, I rented a room in the bed and breakfast, and that was so cozy. Um, so you see that building, and then the next building next to it is kind of like a orangey color, uh, rusty. And that's the common house where there's like shared facilities and a grand piano and... Um, chalkboards and dry erase boards for meetings and there's a kids playroom in there um and then the next building on the other side of the courtyard is the bed and breakfast and it's a white building with green trim and a white wooden porch that wraps around the whole building um and almost every house that you see and that you go inside of is straw bales so the walls are like 18 inches thick most of them are going to be brown, but some of them are white because they have a lime plaster in their, in their plaster. Mm. And, um, so there's a couple houses that are just kind of like, like a shanty, like made with uh, tin and wood and very reclaimed old materials, um, There's lots of like gardens in front of people's homes, but they're pretty small gardens. And there's lots of construction going on all over the place. Um, not with like major power tools. Usually, usually it's just like it's pretty quiet. It's like people stomping plaster on a tarp (laughs) Mm -hmm. and just having fun and enjoying themselves and that kind of construction. Um, and there's like gravel roads, and then there's wood chip mulched paths and then there's um open fields that lead to the ultimate frisbee field where it's just this beautiful mown sports field perfect short grass perfect for playing frisbee and sports and wiffle ball um and then there's like just a a path mode through the grass that'll lead you to the pond um there's a swimming pond with a dock and uh then there's a food forest on the other side of the swimming pond and that's where my beehives are and then there's like the agricultural area beside that where there you'll see a hoop house and there's a vineyard with grapes and lots of and then there's animals on the other side of that and then beyond that, there's 280 acres of land for you to, like, there's paths mode for you to go through these walks through the land. And it's really beautiful and connecting.
1: Oh, that sounds idyllic. It sounds fantastic.
2: I love it here.
1: <laughs> you can definitely tell. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. That sounds, uh, I mean that that just sounds that just sounds lovely. You know, you've painted us a very very nice picture of the place.
2: So if you wanna see if you wanna see some actual real pictures of my real life, um I often am carrying around a video camera making just like daily sort of podcasty videos of living a simple life, which is like this website that my partner and I have where we document our life and share it with people and it's livingasimplelife.com
1: livingasimplelife.com yeah great, great great i'm gonna i'm gonna write that down myself and we're gonna put it in the description to this podcast com. that sounds sounds fantastic um
2: it's actually not so simple it's it's voluntary complexity (laughs) it's so complex to live this way
1: you know i guess you could say it would just be it would be a difference for a lot of people i think but uh honestly living in that manner I, i i really feel like i really do feel like a lot of people resonate with that more than A life that's essentially alienating, which is, you know, what modern life seems to be.
2: Absolutely. Mm. I think my biggest takeaway and my biggest change since my life in California where I worked seven jobs and felt like a slave and um, the biggest thing for me is that I might have a very full day here, but it's doing things that I'm passionate about. I love what I spend my time doing now instead of like getting dressed in this sexist, super tight skirt suit to go to work in a hotel to welcome super rich people. Like instead I'm growing my own food and processing it and preserving it for the winter. I'm going to meetings that I actually care about the decisions and outcomes of. I'm shearing sheep and processing wool and dyeing fabric and making crafts that I can sell to neighbors. Um, I'm raising goats and a, and a miniature donkey and sharing that life with my friends. Um, I'm, I'm learning natural building and like laying a brick floor and applying earthen plaster to a straw bale wall. It's such a fulfilling life, even though it's complicated and, and, physically pretty demanding um it's more than fulfilling
0: right right in other words it's it's um dynamic as opposed to monotonous and redundant
2: definitely
1: yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah and this is the the way in life human beings were intended to live you know, we weren't intended to be stuck in this, this perpetual rat race that's been imposed on us. You know, it's... I I find it very appealing. I think a lot of people will.
2: So. We're ready for you. We're building it, so now you need to come.
1: Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I and I would encourage everybody to go and, and research more about this. You know, it like I said earlier, you know... The time is going to come quickly. It's going to become even more uncomfortable in the cities, you know, when they have to start doing rolling blackouts and, uh, you know, and and, and gas shortages and all these things. And, you know, folks in Dancing Bunny Eco Village are going to be just fine. If you're living in a big city, you're probably going to be pretty uncomfortable. You might want to think about that. You know,
0: amen to that.
1: (laughs) So. But uh, Ray, why don't you give us uh, some of the contact information for the Eco Village? Uh, you know, we were talking about ic.org. And then why don't you share, like, uh, you know, you say you do some freelance work online. If you have any outlets for that, you, uh, plug some of your own projects as well.
3: Um,
2: sure. I do voiceover work at raymachado.com. And my partner is Aaron Murphy, and he does voiceover work also, AaronMurphy.com. Living a Simple Life is where we share video content about um, living life in an eco-village. And then, let's see, IC.org for Intentional Communities. And to be able to visit Dancing Rabbit, just DancingRabbit.org um and then i'm sure there's like a contact button where you can contact us i think the correspondent will respond to that
1: there is indeed a contact button yeah that's how i reached you guys that's how we reached you guys so yes well fantastic ray it's been so great talking to you i really appreciate you coming on the show and and talking about your life and uh the philosophy of this wonderful project the dancing rabbit eco village
2: Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Patrick. Great talking with you both.
0: Thank you, Ray.
1: Yeah, it was a great show tonight. I want to thank everybody for tuning in and listening. This is Eric Scott Picard and Patrick Ryan from Free Radical Media. Uh, All of those contact uh, links should be up in the description to this podcast and up on our website, which incidentally is freeradicalmedia.net. And you can find us on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and most of your major social media outlets. Another great show tonight. I hope you tune in next time and take a look at some of our back catalog. Have a good evening, Free Radical Media.